0: Hello, my name is Kevin Reardon. I'm a military legal officer with the New Zealand Defence Force, and I'm also an adjunct lecturer in law at Victoria University of Wellington. In this lecture, I will outline one of the major bases of individual criminal responsibility under international law, namely command responsibility, which is also known, perhaps more accurately, as superior responsibility. My interest in this subject is as a student and as a teacher, and as a legal advisor to my government. But I'm also interested in it because in the course of my duties in a number of peacekeeping operations, I've had the opportunity to witness a number of different types of commanders and superiors in action. And I've seen the results of good and principled leadership, and the results of poor and unprincipled leadership. As part of the New Zealand Delegation to the Rome Conference on the Establishment of an International Criminal Court, I was fortunate to be involved in the numerous working group discussions on this subject, and I had the opportunity to see the doctrine debated and developed by some very fine legal minds with the assistance of a lot of people with experience from the field. Under the doctrine of superior responsibility, the accused, on the basis of his or her status as a superior or commander may be convicted because of a failure to prevent an international crime from occurring in the first place or a failure to punish the perpetrator after having found out that the offense was committed now the doctrine is a controversial one and it has been since its inception and i hope that this lecture will highlight some of those controversies. And throw a little bit of light on why this principle is so important. And I'm going to start by discussing the philosophical basis. The phil- philosophical underpinning of this doctrine is actually centuries old and it can be summed up with the old French expression noblesse oblige. Nobility has its obligations which for this lecture I'm going to paraphrase as rank has its responsibilities. An army is dominated by its officers. To the officers of the armed forces, great power and prestige is accorded. But with that power and prestige comes responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to ensure that subordinates comply with international law, and particularly with the law of armed conflict. The power of command of an officer is based on a number of factors, including the instinct of obedience which has been nurtured amongst subordinates. Persons of lower rank don't only follow orders because they're required to, but because the officer will usually be an expert in matters of military judgement, and even if not, will invariably be possessed of better knowledge of the situation than the soldiery are. A soldier, is in fact reliant for his or her very survival on the battlefield on the decisions of a commander. A refusal to follow orders may lead not only to disciplinary consequences but to the loss of a battle, the death of friends and comrades and the loss of his or her own life. But if that is not enough the officer has the backing of the law. Disobedience of orders has disciplinary consequences often very severe ones. So in this respect the position of the officer in law is actually very nearly unique. Now the form of criminal responsibility called command responsibility is also sometimes known as Yamashita responsibility after General Tomoyuki Yamashita who was the commanding general of the Japanese army forces in the Philippine Islands when it fell to US forces. He was tried by a military commission on the basis that he had failed in his duty as a commander to control the operations of his troops, permitting them to commit atrocities against the civilian population and against prisoners of war. General Yamashita was found guilty and was sentenced to death. The decision remains a contentious one to this day. And the exact basis on which Yamashita was found guilty is not as clear as one would hope. In fact, some people say he was convicted simply on the basis of strict liability, without any indication of guilty knowledge. Others assert that the Commission simply disbelieved his protestation of ignorance. It's one of those cases that can be read very much in the light of what you want to find there. And if you want to understand more on the subject, I urge you to read it for yourself. Yamashita challenged the finding of the commission, ultimately taking it before the United States Supreme Court, but he was not successful. The dissenting judgments in that case are the ones now most frequently cited, and the proposition that Yamashita should not have been found guilty for what he was, a general, rather than for what he had done, was one that has enjoyed a degree of sympathy, however the principle of command responsibility itself is now generally accepted even if its applicability to the facts of the Yamashita case is not. Indeed, it's specifically provided for in the Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions at Article 87. It's now also generally accepted as a principle of customary international law which is to say that states recognise that holding commanders to account is a state practice derived from legal obri- obligation, regardless of treaty obligation. Now, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia set out to describe the purpose of command responsibility, and it stated that its purpose was uh, as a mechanism to ensure compliance with the laws and customs of war and international humanitarian law generally. It can be seen in part to arise from one of the basic principles of international humanitarian law, aiming at ensuring protection for protected categories of persons and objects during armed conflict. It requires in the first place preventative measures, which commanders are in a position to take, thereby ensuring the enforcement of the law of armed conflict. Now, I think that command responsibility has another purpose too, and it's one that's hinted at in the statement made by General MacArthur when he confirmed the Yamashita judgment. MacArthur observed that in addition to failing in his duties to mankind, a general who does not use discipline in order to prevent war crimes also fails in his duties to his troops. An officer is bound not only to protect his or her soldiers from the actions of the enemy, but also to save them from themselves, so to speak. An army which returns its soldiers to civilian life, knowing that they have been allowed to commit senseless atrocities, with all of the psychological damage that this entails, can hardly be satisfied that it has taken good care of them. But lastly, officers have a very real obligation to the law itself, which is where the power actually comes from. An officer who disregards the law, or allows disregard of it, is actually undercutting the very basis on which his or her authority stands. That all notwithstanding, the idea of holding commanders criminally responsible for the actions of subordinates, rather than simply accepting that they were at a moral level, came to fruition only after World War II, and even then, some doubted its logical basis. I now want to make some general comments about criminal responsibility of commanders, and it should perhaps be observed that a commander is obviously criminally responsible for acts in breach of the law of armed conflict which he or she commits personally. In fact, official position affords no protection at all. The commander is also responsible for those offences which he or she orders That much is largely uncontroversial and neither of those things actually fits within the concept of command responsibility as it's generally understood. It's simply individual criminal responsibility. Command responsibility comes into play most effectively when there's no evidence of an order or of personal involvement, and yet forces under the effective command and control of the commander have carried out crimes against international law anyway. Now, the first point to note here is that these grounds of liability are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, a commander may well carry out offences personally at the same time, ordering them to occur, not an at all unusual scenario with junior officers. And there could be a big overlap between this doctrine, command responsibility, and that of joint criminal enterprise. That someone might also be liable for ordering an offence and then failing to punish subordinates for carrying it out, seems at first glance to be logically a little challenging. However, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia insisted that the forms of liability could be concurrent and a number of accused have faced charges under both heads of liability. A probable development on this position seems to suggest that where personal liability can be proved, it should prevail and that command should be simply viewed as an aggravating factor. But before we develop this idea any further, let me set out what is essentially regarded as the constituent parts of the superior responsibility nexus. And this model has come out of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. In order to prevail, the prosecution must establish beyond reasonable doubt each of the following elements, that there was a superior subordinate relationship, Second, the superior knew, or had reason to know, that the subordinate was about to commit the offence, or had done so. That the superior failed to take the necessary and reasonable measures to prevent the offence, or to punish the principal offenders. Now, there is an obvious other requirement, namely, that an offence was committed. And there's another element that may or may not be implicit, namely that the accused was under some form of duty to prevent or punish the actions in question. Now, I propose to break this down into its constituent parts, and we'll start first with the superior-subordinate relationship. The persons committing the crimes must be under the effective command and control of the accused. The classic model I referred to above obviously contemplated that the superior really would be an officer. As the case was with General Yamashita and as it was with the German high command officers who were judged against this principle at Nuremberg. And it was against this model that the concept and its title were most easily understood. And that might be part of the reason that the duty, as expressed in Additional Protocol 1, never made its way into Additional Protocol 2, which deals with non-international armed conflict, where at least some of the commanders were not going to have legitimate rank and power. That model of warfare, the classic one between states, was somewhat on the wane even as the formulation was starting to be set into treaty form. Indeed, civilians were actually found guilty under this principle at both Nuremberg and Tokyo trials. Warfare in the latter part of the 20th century through to today has often been conducted by individuals who are not de jure or lawful commanders at all. They may be warlords, or self-appointed commanders, and if that is true of armed conflict, it's certainly true of genocides and crimes against humanity. When the focus is directed away from actual combat-related crimes to attacks on the civilian population, the range of actors widens still further. Perhaps surprisingly, to include people such as managers of tea companies, a case I will return to later. They may be civil officials, or they may be individuals whose exact status is never really clear, though their influence is nevertheless manifest. In many of the atrocities with which we are familiar, from our TV screens and newspapers, the offences were committed by paramilitary or irregular militia forces, in circumstances where the command chain was questionable at best. The conceptual challenge is therefore whether people can be held to share the responsibility of lawful commanders simply by virtue of their de facto authority, and that question has been resolved time and again in the affirmative. On the basis of their de facto control over the offenders and applying the effective control test, leaders of such groups may be found criminally responsible for crimes committed by subordinates. Now, if you want to explore this issue further, you should start by reading the Chalabici case in front of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, where the issue was discussed at length and a thorough survey of international and domestic cases was conducted. This finding was repeated throughout the ICTY and ICTR jurisprudence. In the Alexovsky trial, for example, the tribunal found that the decisive criterion is not only the accused's formal legal status, but also his ability, as demonstrated by his duties and competence, to exercise control. This includes powers to prevent or to punish. Clearly, however, the fact of the relationship is not as straightforward as in, cases, in such cases as it is in the case of military commanders. And because of this, the cases, particularly the earlier ones, place an emphasis on the exercise of a power which is similar to that of a military commander. Now, I should just mention, but this doesn't mean that it's the same. The nexus in such a case is in identifying a relationship that resembles the classic form of command, in fact, although not in law. Indeed, in one such case, an accused was actually discharged of responsibility under this doctrine, not because he had no power or influence, he clearly did, but rather because that power and influence was purely as a result of his bullying and domineering character, not as a result of any identifiable superior um, relationship. Now, to bring this question up to date, the Rome Statute takes a rather different approach with with respect to the distinction between civilian and military superiors. In my opinion, Article 28 actually identifies three different types of superiors, not two, but it does break them into two groups. In the first group, it deals with genuine military commanders. But it adds to this those persons, who will often technically be civilians, who are effectively acting as a military commander. Article 28b, on the other hand, deals with genuine civilian responsibility in those instances where the subordinates were under the effective authority and control of a civilian superior. Now, I should mention that the English language allows for the nuances of different meanings between command and authority and control. but well, we discover that this is not the same case in all languages. But if I can be forgiven for making a personal observation about this formula, it is that it ties in completely with the experience of many people who have been working in war zones. There, you will meet real commanders persons commissioned by their government who have real training, including in the law of armed conflict, and they have genuine rank. Then there are those people who may identify themselves as Colonel or General, and who are addressed as such by their subordinates, who purport to command units that may or may not bear some relationship to their title, and who wear uniforms that in some cases they have designed themselves. Commanders of this type will often have no training in the law of armed conflict and sometimes no respect for it either. But on the other hand, they often aspire to legitimacy and wish to gain the legal authenticity that their de facto power suggests. And then there are more shadowy figures. In such operations, one often hears, if you want to achieve that gold, you have to talk to Mr. So-and-so. Nothing happens in this town without his say-so so if nothing happens in this town without his permission and slaughter of innocent men and women and children did occur is there not the prospect of a reasonable inference of law arising here now before i pass on from this important first aspect of the test a few more quick observations because the military laws of every state require all soldiers to comply with the law of armed conflict Every person in the chain of command who exercises effective control over subordinates is responsible for crimes committed by such persons. This means that more than one superior may be responsible for crimes committed by the same subordinates, so long as each of the superiors in the chain of command exercises effective control. Also want to mention the extension of this theory to non-international armed conflict. As noted above, the doctrine never found its way into Additional Protocol 2. However, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia considered it to be applicable to this area of law, and it's generally asserted to be part of customary international law that it is. In the extraordinary chamber of the courts of Cambodia, the defence in one of the cases, that of Ayang Sari, has already signalled its intention to challenge the basis on which the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia came to that conclusion. However, without prejudging the result in that particular case, or any case, it seems clear that as far as the International Criminal Court is concerned, this area of law does apply to non-international armed conflict. It's my recollection that the extension to non-international armed conflict was largely uncontroversial, and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court clearly allows for this. One of the real difficulties with command responsibility is establishing exactly what the command relationship between the accused and the perpetrators of the crimes was. This issue actually arose in respect of Yamashita, since many of the atrocities that were alleged to have occurred were actually carried out by naval troops or marines who were not under Yamashita's command. In the Alexovsky case, the International Criminal Court Tribunal for Yugoslavia had the difficult fact situation of a civilian chief warder of a prison that was manned by both prison guards and military police. Aleksovski was found to have effective control over the former, but not the latter. Far more difficult in the Hazy Haznovich case, um, the, uh, the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia found that the general could not be held responsible for crimes committed by the members of a Mujahideen detachment because the relationship between his Third Corps headquarters and the Mujahideen detachment was not one of subordination but was instead close to overt hostility since the only way to control the detachment was to attack them as if they were a distinct enemy force. The question requires careful proof and it can't be left to assumptions. In the Cherkes case, for example, the International Criminal Tribunal Appeals Chamber had to pick carefully through the intricacies of the command structure of the Bosnian Croat army Army, and to determine not only what unit Cerkis actually commanded, but what the size of it was and what area of territory it was responsible for in order to infer what actions came under his control. The assumption that Cherkis's brigade, as it was called, comprised of a number of battalions, which is generally the case, fell short on proof in the final analysis. And then there is the word effective. In the Yamashita case, the defence argued that the relentless American bombing made it impossible for Yamashita to gather information or effectively exercise command. The tribunal found otherwise, but in the modern environment, the question might be easier to prove one way or the other. There's no requirement that the person committing the offence be in a permanent or fixed relationship with the commander as long as the commander exercised the prerequisite effective control at the time. And its effective control also requires that the superior had the material ability to prevent or punish the commission of violations. Clearly, a commander might theoretically exercise control, and yet that control might not be effective. Staff officers, for example, can be highly ranked, but exercise no command. I now turn to element two, which is knowledge. And we should remind ourselves of what that second requirement is. Namely, that the superior knew or had reason to know that the subordinate was about to commit the offence or had done so. Now, the knowledge, or mens rea, element of superior responsibility entails two distinct components. The accused either knew or had reason to know The term new means actual knowledge, which may not be presumed and must therefore be established either through direct evidence or, if that's not available, inferred from circumstantial evidence. Now, proof of actual knowledge can be established by, amongst other things, documents or accounts or recorded conversations that the commander had received reports that subordinates were committing crimes. And that sometimes includes reports from people like United Nations observers. In many cases, however, the prosecution will need to rely on circumstantial evidence to prove that a superior had knowledge. There's a number of factors that would be relevant to this question, and some of them are more clearly accepted than others. And unfortunately, I don't have time to go into a great deal of detail about them, However, it would be difficult to avoid the conclusion that there was knowledge when there are a very large number of illegal acts occurring over a large area and when their nature is distinctive, for example a number of particular acts of brutality of a similar nature or when a large number of troops are involved or when they require logistic elements to be employed such as transport or holding pens. Then there are inferences that can be drawn from the behavior of the superior in question A commander who routinely absents himself from the scene of a crime can be demonstrating that he or she knows that a crime is about to occur. As can a commander who details at-risk duties such as detainee work to particularly unsavoury subordinates, or to troops with a reputation for brutality. But in the absence of proof of knowledge, the alternative test comes into play, namely that the superior had reason to know. It's more difficult to interpret and apply, and different courts and tribunals have come to slightly different conclusions on this issue. And once again, the nuances of language have come into play. The International Criminal Tribunal uh, Appeals Chamber in the Chalabici case considered in some detail what must be established to prove that the accused had reason to know. In short, the Chamber concluded that a superior would be criminally responsible only if information was available to him or her, which would have put that person on notice of offences committed by subordinates. Although the Trial Chamber had actually used the word specific information, it seems clear that this information does not have to be conclusive that crimes were committed. But it must be specific enough to indicate a need for additional investigation to determine if crimes had been or about to be committed. Now, the law doesn't impose a strict liability on commanders. The law does impose on them a duty to gain information and to stay informed with respect to the acts of those subordinates. And there are some presumptions which have been generally accepted. There's a presumption that commanders are aware of the contents of reports received at their headquarters, although of course commanders can't be responsible to know every detail and certainly not every administrative detail. But if those reports are not adequate or clear, commanders have a duty to request that additional reports be prepared. Commanders are of course allowed to delegate authority and they can to a degree assume that their subordinates will comply with the law, but responsibility for the conduct of the troops remains with the commander. Now, as i previously mentioned, the International Criminal Court statute sets out a different standard for military and civilian superiors, and these differences are also included with wording of different mental ingredient. Pursuant to Article 28 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the test for military superiors is that he or she knew, or owing to the circumstances at the time, should have known that forces were committing or about to commit such crimes. With respect to civilian superiors, on the other hand, it must be proven that the civilian superior knew or consciously disregarded information that clearly indicated that the subordinates were committing or about to commit such crimes. Now, some commentators have observed that this appears to be a higher threshold or a higher test. And perhaps we should just contemplate again momentarily the philosophical basis for command responsibility that I talked about at the beginning. And you can make up your mind as to whether you think that that higher test would be applicable or appropriate. The The question of the difference between should have known and had reason to know, or even ought to have known, is yet to be definitively tested, although the Appeals Chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia certainly thought that there was a difference between these uh, these tests. The fact that the Rome Statute has adopted different mens rea ingredients for standards for military and non-military superiors is considered by some observers to complicate this area of law even further. We'll probably have to wait for a decision by the International Criminal Court which deals with this issue, and probably one by the Appeals Chamber, to find out how much of a practical difference the distinction in terminology causes. At a practical level, however, the general nature of the obligation is clear enough. Commanders who do not pay close attention to the activities of their subordinates are exposing themselves to the risk of prosecution. Certain operations, such as the conduct of detention, for example, pose such general risk that commanders must put in place procedures to ensure that they are adequately and fully informed of the conduct of their subordinates. Now this brings me to the third of the established tests, which is that commanders must take necessary and reasonable measures to prevent or punish. This third element of superior responsibility is governed to a large degree by the first element, since commanders who lack effective control will not be able to satisfy this requirement. The obligation of the superior to act is triggered as soon as he or she becomes aware that the crimes have been committed, or are about to be committed. In one case, the Trial Chamber concluded that the two components of this obligation must be considered together, stating, obviously, where the accused knew or had reason to know that the subordinates were about to commit crimes and failed to prevent them, he can't make up for that failure by punishing the subordinates afterwards. The obligation does however have to be tempered by reason. In the Dalalich case, the International Criminal Tribunal observed that no one can be obliged to perform the impossible. But on the other hand, the attempt to prevent or punish must be a serious effort, not merely a show. Once again, if you wish to examine this notion further, I suggest that you look at the very rich jurisprudence of the ad hoc tribunals and I suggest that you look at cases such as hadzi Hazanovich and Orich. Now, before I finish this presentation, I would like to offer a view on one of the aspects of the doctrine which has caused concern to some commentators. Some objection is occasionally raised that the doctrine criminalises omissions rather than commissions. And it's asserted that such a duty only exists where there is a clear legal duty to prevent a crime. And how can such a duty be ascribed to a tea factory manager, as was the case in the Massima case, or indeed to the head of a rebellious militia, which would be like ascribing a duty to prevent crime to the head of a criminal gang? However, under the general principles of law practiced by nations, criminal responsibility for omissions is not really so rare as is sometimes asserted. It is true that it applies to people like police, who have a duty to uphold the law. In many legal systems, there is also a responsibility where the offender is, for example, in charge of a dangerous thing, or where he or she has a special relationship with the victim, for example, a child or a prisoner. In my personal opinion, both of these factors loom large in command responsibility, since one can hardly dispute that the commander of an armed force or an armed gang controls a very dangerous thing, and that he or she has a very specific duty in respect of civilians, prisoners of war, and detainees who are essentially powerless to defend themselves. So again, at a practical level, it would be my advice to the uh, state-appointed manager of an influential enterprise, who allows his or her employers to take a time off work to use company vehicles and uniforms in order to to perpetrate genocidal activities, of which the manager clearly approves, that he or she, at the very least, runs the risk of being found to have omitted to comply with a legal duty. In conclusion, the theory of superior responsibility is now a well-established principle of law, and it's been developed and refined through a number of sources, some of which I have discussed with you today. This includes treaties and domestic and international case law. To recap, the doctrine applies to military commanders who exercise effective control over their subordinates, but it also applies to civilian superiors who exercise the requisite level or type of effective control. Formal rank is not required and both de jure and de facto superiors can be held liable for the conduct of subordinates. Although actual knowledge of what those subordinates are doing can be difficult to establish, inferences can be drawn that the commander did have that knowledge and circumstantial evidence may be sufficient to establish this point. The mental requirement is that that commander or superior either knew or had reason to know, but the final word on exact meaning and variations of that test may not be known until we have a final ruling from the International Criminal Court. But I would like to conclude by returning to my original point. International criminality is frequently the result of bad and unprincipled leaders. Leaders during an armed conflict and civil upheaval, both military and civilian, have a tough job to do. They must reconcile conflicting imperatives in difficult and dangerous circumstances, something that people delivering lectures decades later don't have to worry about so much. But that position of leadership brings with it duties and responsibilities. To the helpless who fall within the leader's control, to the troops and to the individuals under that person's responsibility, and to the law itself. To quote General George Patton, there is only one type of discipline, perfect discipline. And if you do not enforce perfect discipline, you are all potential murderers. Thank you very much for your attention.